Well, you know, if you went out into the city and randomly stopped people on the street and asked them what it means to be a Christian, I bet you'd get all sorts of interesting answers. Because people's perceptions about Christians are all over the map these days, and, and probably much of the blame for that, if we're being honest, has to be on those of us who claim to be Christians. Because across the modern church as a whole, I think it's safe to say that our behavior and our convictions, uh, the way that we live our lives, is also all over the map uh, from one believer to another. Even, even within what is considered the evangelical church of the West, there are massive differences uh, from denomination to denomination, from church to church, even from person to person in how we choose to represent Christ in our daily lives. And some of that can't be helped because we're all different. We're all individual human beings, which means we're all inherently different. And so not all of that is wrong, by the way. But there are some aspects of being Christ followers that should be common to all Christians and evident in all of our lives. Because if we are truly Christian, then we have the same spirit living inside of us, one to another, right? In 1 Corinthians 12, 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul wrote, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So yes, there are differences between us, but there should also be evidence of the same spirit in each of us that actually transcends our differences, meaning what unites us should be far more recognizable than what separates us. Okay, those early followers of Christ were initially called Christians in Antioch, according to Acts 11, because of their behavior, what they said and what they did every day. They were called Christians because of the way they lived their lives, which was like Christ Jesus and the way that he lived his life. Why? Because the same spirit, the spirit of Christ was living in each one of them. So they were recognized by what they had in common. Their lives were characterized by the same convictions because all of their hope and all of their faith and all of their trust was in Jesus Christ alone, which is how it should be for all of us today because despite our differences, the spirit of Christ is stronger in us than our differences are. He is our hope. He is the one in whom we place all of our faith and all of our trust. And so the question is, when people see us, do they recognize that about us? Do they see a hope that transcends the cares of this life? Not that we don't have cares or concerns. Certainly we do. We're human. But does the hope that we have in Christ, does that hope ultimately override those cares and concerns? And if so, is that evident to everyone else around us. Uh, likewise, do they see the faith and trust in Christ that compels us to behave like him even in the most difficult circumstances? Or do we seem to be falling apart just like everyone else who puts their trust in this world when, when hardship bears down on them, which it does at times on all of us? I, I wonder sometimes, do people see Christians today as having just as much hopelessness and despair as the rest of the world? Or do they recognize us as being uniquely different and yet unified 
as a family, the people of God, and that we're all commonly hopeful, filled with faith and trusting in something far greater than anything in this world, which is what, which is what we find in our story today as we continue our sermon series looking at the life and times of Joseph where God's people in the story are relocating, they're resettling in Egypt during a time of great hopelessness and despair because the world is literally starving through an unprecedented famine. And so the Hebrew people have left their homeland, they've traveled to Egypt with no guarantee of safe passage or even a place to live when they get there except for the fact that God told Jacob in a dream that that he would be with him, which gives Jacob the hope and faith and trust that he needs to make the difficult journey uh, at 130 years old, by the way, from Canaan to Egypt, where they will be living next door to the general population of the Egyptians. And yet they are recognizably and, and starkly so very different from the general population, not just in appearance, but in their convictions, which affects how they live their lives. It affects how they behave every day. And and again, it's quite noticeable to everyone else. Uh, It's a wonderful picture, actually, of what life looks like when you belong to God. And, And not only do God's people benefit from what he's doing in their lives, but the Egyptian people actually are benefiting from it as well in life-altering ways, as we'll see, which really should be the case today as long as there are Christians in this world, okay? This world should be a better place because we're in it. Not unchanged or indifferent. No, the world should be better off. It should be noticeably blessed because of us. The whole world should be blessed because we're in it. And that has, in fact, been the case over the centuries, even in just our country, right? Because of God working in and through the lives of Christians in America. Uh, Great schools and universities have been founded. In fact, every single Ivy League school in America, save one, was founded by some branch of the Christian church. Not only are there hospitals scattered all over the country and the world for that matter that were founded by the church, but the entire modern hospital system owes its very existence to Christians and the church of Jesus Christ. And on and on it goes. Shelters for the poor and the homeless. Massive organized domestic and global outreach programs to assist those in need to provide clean water and sanitary living conditions and homes and community buildings and clothing and school supplies, right? Orphanages, rescue missions for those forced into slavery and the sex trade. Contrary to what some would like to claim today, this world is in fact a better place because of God's people being in it because of God's people rising up to make a difference, to make an impact, to bless a hurting world with the love of Christ. Why do we do that? Because we have a hope that those apart from Christ do not have. Because we have faith and trust in someone they do not know because of the Spirit of Christ that lives inside of us. And yet that should be so evident It should be so obvious in our lives that people see it and are able to recognize exactly who we belong to, which is important because this world desperately needs to see 
what life looks like when you belong to God. And the only way they will ever see that is if we are living that out in front of them every day. So let's pick up our story where we left off last week and we'll see what God's people today can glean from God's people then. We'll begin at Genesis 47. Let's read the first six verses. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They're now in the land of Goshen and from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. The Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? They said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we've come to sojourn in the land for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land and let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. So from the time Joseph arrives in Egypt, right up through these meetings with Pharaoh, he's working a strategy to try and gain Pharaoh's approval for Joseph's family to be able to settle in Goshen. And if you've been here the last several weeks, you've heard this story. Uh, Goshen is a, a Semitic name uh, for an area of land in the northeastern region of the Nile Delta. It was perfectly suited for agriculture and particularly for raising livestock because it was full of these expansive pasture lands and rich, fertile soil. And so Joseph has taken several brilliantly calculated steps now to work uh, this plan on behalf of his family with Pharaoh. So as we saw back in chapter 46 last week, Joseph has his family come directly from Canaan into Goshen where he wants them to settle with their flocks and their herds and their family and their belongings. So they're already in Goshen before Pharaoh even knows they're in Egypt. And then also in chapter 46, we see Joseph coaching his brothers as to how they should answer Pharaoh when they're questioned by him. In effect, making several compelling arguments as to why they should be able to settle there. And so as chapter 47 begins here, Joseph informs Pharaoh that his family has just arrived all the way from Canaan and they just happen to be now in Goshen with everything that they own. And then verse 2 says, And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh, which is kind of interesting. Why, why not all of the brothers? Well, uh, interestingly, we have an ancient Jewish midrash with, uh, that's a Hebrew uh, commentary basically on the Old Testament from as early as the second century that says Joseph chose the five weakest brothers from among them for this meeting with Pharaoh, the five weakest brothers, so that Pharaoh would be less inclined to enlist Jacob's sons into the king's army. <laughs> and so Joseph has very carefully and very skillfully managed this entire situation to the benefit of his family. And it not only works to perfection, but Pharaoh is so impressed that he offers them jobs as royal stockmen, right? In verse six, Pharaoh says to Joseph, let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, if you know any able men among them, obviously not these five, put them in charge of my livestock. Give these guys a cheeseburger or something, right? 
so this is an official government position he's offering them, okay? To care for the king's flocks was to be considered an officer of the crown, which we find frequently described in ancient Egyptian inscriptions, which not only meant these guys would be provided for, but it meant they would enjoy legal protections that were normally only given to Egyptian citizens, never foreigners, right? So Joseph's plan works even better than expected. And the, the comment by Pharaoh, if you know any able men among them, which he says, of course, right after meeting these five brothers, certainly suggests that Joseph was indeed very selective about which brothers he let Pharaoh meet. And so it's just a great plot to the story, how this family, and particularly Joseph, when all the odds were stacked against them, and even now as the known world is under this devastating famine, how God works through his people, not only to bless them, his people, but as we'll see, to bless everyone else around them as well. Which, by the way, is how God works in your life today when you belong to him. Let's keep reading verses 7 through 10. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood before him, stood him before, excuse me, Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. This is a fascinating conversation between these two heads of nations, okay? Jacob is an old man. He has come limping literally and figuratively into Egypt in uh, chapter 46. And again here in 47, we see him being helped along, even carried at times by his sons. And now Joseph stands him up before Pharaoh. And although he is a father of what will become, as we know now, a great nation. On this day, he has but 70 family members living on borrowed land in a foreign country. And yet he stands there in front of this great Egyptian king who is at the pinnacle of his own power over a great nation. And yet Jacob is the one who bestows the blessings on Pharaoh. Fascinating. Even more surprising is that Pharaoh seems to understand the significance of what Jacob is doing here, even though Jacob has very little material wealth or standing or power comparatively. But I believe personally that Pharaoh recognized the same thing in Jacob here that he recognized in Joseph back in chapter 41 when right after interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, he asked his staff and advisors concerning Joseph, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? It's a striking admission, by the way, for a pagan king to make, but that's exactly how it should be when people who do not know Christ encounter those who do. There's no indication that Pharaoh ever decided to convert from his pagan religion and follow the God of the Hebrews, but he certainly recognizes the spirit of the one true God in Joseph and now here in Jacob, which again is how it should be. When you belong to God, his spirit in us should be glaringly evident even to those who don't follow him. And so Jacob blesses Pharaoh, which by the way is prophetically symbolic of the blessing that comes to all of the Egyptians through uh, Joseph, as we'll see in a few moments. But first I want to point out not only what Pharaoh 
recognizes about Jacob, but what Jacob recognizes about his own life, okay? When Pharaoh asks Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? Jacob responds with, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. That phrase, the days of the years of your life, was actually an ancient idiom, uh, an expression which Jacob very conspicuously changes in his response when he says, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. The word sojourning in the Hebrew is the word magor. It means to be a stranger, to, to be on a pilgrimage in a temporary abode, right? And don't forget, Jacob wasn't answering a question about his time in Egypt, right? He's just arrived there in Egypt. Now, he's referring to his entire life on earth as a pilgrimage, as a stranger in a temporary location, including his time in Canaan. And then he goes on to refer to the days of his life as few and evil, which is not a cynical statement at all. It's simply the perspective of a man who knows that he belongs to God. You see, he's saying, compared to eternity, in my true home, with my father, my days here are few and evil. In other words, my hope is not in this world or in this life, okay? When you belong to God, your hope is not in this world. That is as true today as it was then. If you belong to God, your hope is not in this world. But I'll tell you, you wouldn't know it by how we act sometimes. At times we behave as if everything depends on this world. And I'll just tell you, I'm as guilty of this as anyone. All right? So I'm talking to myself here. When circumstances present themselves in our lives that threaten our financial security or our health, or our social status, or our standard of living. We, we sometimes act as if everything that matters depends upon the outcome of whatever this world can offer us as a solution in those situations. And then if what we do get from the world is less than what we expected or hoped for, sometimes we come unraveled. We, we become utterly hopeless. But why? If we belong to God, why do we behave like that? It's because we have mistakenly accepted the lie that our hope is in what this world offers. But it's nothing more than a lie. It is a great deception, in fact, that many Christians have come to believe, and yet it not only deceives us, but it communicates the wrong message to the people around us, because when you belong to God, your hope is not, it is not in this world. When God's people were being oppressed by those in the world who were using their power and wealth to oppress them, King David wrote this song for God's people to sing so they would never forget what their true source of hope was. In Psalm 62, the first seven verses, he writes, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. In other words, I will not fall apart when things don't go my way. Verse 3, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone... Oh, my soul, 
wait in silence. This is how David responds. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Okay, do, do bad things happen to good people? Of course they do. Do Christians face persecution throughout the world? Yes, we know they do. Are we always promised a fair shake in this life? No, certainly we are not. But as unpleasant and unfair and unsettling as all of that may be, it is not cause for hopelessness because this world is not our source of hope, nor is it the final arbiter of our joy, which comes from our hope. So don't lose your perspective. If you belong to Christ and life throws you a curveball, look, don't despair when the outlook of your circumstances is unfavorable. Don't ever give up hope even when the world says it's hopeless. Because our hope is in the one who is greater than this world, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20 says, we have this as a sure and steadfast, I love this phrase, anchor of the soul, a hope that endures, that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. In other words, because Jesus Christ is our hope, we have a stability and a security that no one or no thing can take away from us. We have an anchor for our souls, an immovable, unchanging hope that cannot be taken away by anything in this world. That's why Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Matthew 10, 28. You see, this world cannot rob you of your hope, which means the hopelessness that grips us at times is nothing more than a lie that we've allowed ourselves to believe. It is an empty threat. It is a toothless enemy with no real power or hold over us. In 1 Peter 5, 8, the Apostle Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around, he says, like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You know why Peter describes the devil as being like a lion? Because he's not actually a lion. He's an imposter. He has no teeth. He cannot actually harm us. And yet in Revelation 5, 5, Jesus is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. It doesn't say he's like a lion. It says he is the lion. You see the difference? Jesus is the real deal. Jesus has all the power. He is the king. Our enemy is nothing more than a cheap plastic imitation. He's all bark and no bite. He has no teeth. He has no power. And he is the king of nothing. So the next time the enemy of your soul whispers thoughts of hopelessness into your life, he loves to do that. You just open up God's word to Psalm 62 and sing along with David and the host of God's people who have come before us, who declared before their enemies, for God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. 
He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. Our hope is not in this world. Let's keep reading. Verses 11 and 12. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. So Jacob and his family are granted the best of all that Egypt has to offer. They're permitted to settle in Goshen, or as it's referred to in verse 11, the land of Ramses. It's the, that's the region of Goshen. It's actually the modern-day uh, village of Kantir. It's about 65 miles northeast of Cairo. And they proceed to do exactly what God intends for his people to do. They take care of one another. Right? Just as Jacob has provided and cared for his family all these years, now Joseph provides for them during this great famine because when you belong to God, you belong to a family. And that's what true families do. They care for one another. Sure, there are times when a family member doesn't pull their weight, when someone uh, makes a mistake, when we hurt each other at times, but when you're a part of a family, you work through it. You love one another through it and you keep going. That's what families do. They care for one another. And if you belong to God, listen, if you belong to God, you belong to the greatest family on earth. The Apostle Paul says it this way, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, Ephesians 2.19. And then in 1 Timothy 5.8, he says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. He says that, of course, in the context of caring for widows and orphans in the church, those who have no means of caring for themselves. If you belong to Jesus Christ, then you're a member of his household, his family, which means we take care of each other, and especially those who are the most vulnerable among us, those who cannot care for themselves. And so we have an obligation to care for each other. The Apostle John says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk in deed and in truth. I'm telling you, the world has had enough of talk and words from the church. They need more deed and more truth. 1 John three seventeen and 18. It's a clear directive in Scripture as to how we are to behave when we belong to God, which speaks volumes, by the way, to the rest of the world when we actually behave like the family that we are. I've lost count of how many times we've read this verse in church where Jesus says, by this all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 35. Another verse like it. In John 17, 21, Jesus prays that they, he's referring to all of us, may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. He says, so that, what's the reason for all of that oneness and togetherness and unity. Jesus says, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. It's our testimony, our unity. So not only do we obviously benefit by caring 
for one another as members of God's family, but our testimony is actually validated before the rest of the world because of that Christ-like behavior. So how we care for one another actually has nothing to do, it has nothing to do with how much we like or dislike one another. It has everything to do with the fact that we're members of the same household. We're family, whether we like it or not, which is why it's so incredibly disheartening to me, and I'm sure it is to many of you, to see believers ripping each other to shreds on social media. I can't stand it. Maybe it's always been that way in the church and technology has just brought it all to the forefront as social media now allows the whole world uh, to gaze into conversations that used to be held in private. But I still don't understand why we think we have the right to personally attack other people on a public forum or in private for that matter. Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He didn't say, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have the better theological argument than your brother. He didn't say, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you feel really, really strongly about that position that you are arguing. He didn't say, by this, all people will know you're my disciples as long as you are absolutely convinced that you're right. No. He said, the way the rest of this world will know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you are a part of my family is the way that you love each other. That's it. Because that's what families do. Okay, we don't have the right to malign one another, to, to tear each other apart, no matter how passionate we are about our side of an issue. We just don't. Remember what Paul said, that one who doesn't care for the other members of the family has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I'm not talking about ignoring lies or untruths or distortions of Scripture. I'm telling you, there's a time and a place and a right way in love to disciple one another, which is what we're doing here. Okay? I just think personally, that we need to be very, very careful about the way we treat our fellow believers because we're brothers and sisters in the same family. Now, we're going to read a longer portion of the chapter, and I'm going to hurry it along. Uh, we're going to do this all at once because this entire section illustrates the same point. So let's read verses 13 through 36. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain they had uh, bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house, and when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, give us your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. When that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? 
buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh and give us seed that we may live and not die and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priest he did not buy, for the priest had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the fields and food for yourselves and for your households and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Okay, at a, at a casual reading, this almost seems like a different Joseph than the one who has been so gracious in taking care of his family after all that he suffered at the hands of his brothers because here he is seemingly taking advantage of these Egyptian people in their most vulnerable hour. When out of food, in a series of agreements with Joseph, they give all their money, they give all their livestock, they give all their land, and ultimately they give away their own freedom just to stay alive. But to fully understand what Joseph was doing here and and what exactly the Egyptian people were agreeing to, we have to understand debtors' slavery in the ancient Near East, okay? Uh, Both Egyptian and Mesopotamian slavery came in two distinct and very uh, different forms. There were slaves who were bought and sold as chattel, uh, as property, which were usually war captives who had no rights and virtually no hope of freedom because they were owned. They were considered property by their captors. It's what we tend to think about today when we think about slavery. But there was a second kind, and again, a distinctly different kind of slavery in the Near East, which is described in ancient Mesopotamian laws and contracts where free people would enter into a mutual agreement with someone needing or desiring labor. So they would voluntarily sell their services for a certain amount of income, and then the slave would work for their master or employer, really, until the debt was paid off and they could once again gain their freedom. It was much closer, actually, to tenant farming in the modern era, where a farmer would have access to land and its produce under an agreement with the landowner to share some of the produce with them. And the fact that these Egyptians were the ones to suggest this arrangement in the first place. And the fact that the agreement included the Egyptians keeping four-fifths, by the way, of what they produced from the land, and the fact that they expressed tremendous gratitude toward Joseph when they say, you've saved our lives, may it please the Lord, we'll be servants uh, to Pharaoh. All of this points to the fact that Joseph was actually doing a tremendous service, and graciously so, toward the Egyptians as they continue working the land and essentially pay a 20% tax, which I bet is better than what most of us have to pay today, right? So this whole scenario is a win-win for Joseph and his people and for Pharaoh and his people. It's a great illustration of the fact that when you belong to God, you bless those who don't. Okay, when, when you belong to God, the world that you live in should be a better place because you're in it. 
And not just the believing world, not just your fellow Christians, but those who don't follow Christ as well. They should be blessed by you too. Jesus had plenty to say about taking care of those in need. The, the Proverbs are rife with instructions about taking care of the poor and those with the greatest need among us. And that wasn't restricted to those who were believers. Galatians 6.10, the Apostle Paul says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's exactly what we see Joseph doing in our story here, okay? Deference is given to God's people. But that doesn't mean we ignore those who are hurting and in need outside of the household of faith. On the contrary, we should be doing good to everyone. And so I, I think it's reasonable to ask ourselves, are the lives of the people I work with better because I'm there? Are the lives of the people I go to school with better because I'm there? Are the lives of the people that I'm in contact with on a regular basis, are their lives better because I am a part of their lives? Because our lives and the way that we behave should be Christ-like. And if our behavior is in fact Christ-like, then there will be blessing to those around us. And again, that's what we see here in the story. As Joseph, God's man, blesses Pharaoh and his people, and as he does that, Joseph and his own family are blessed beyond their wildest dreams. As we see in the final section of the chapter, let's read it together, verse 27 to the end. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. So while the world is languishing under famine, Jacob and his family are uh, fruitful and multiplying greatly. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. And so even in his dying, as we'll see next week, Jacob is blessing his family. Joseph is doing the same. And through it all, God fulfills his promises to Jacob. And he fulfills the dreams, the promises that he gave to Joseph so long ago, which you can always count on when you belong to God. Because he makes good on every single promise. Okay? Joseph lived a life that was so different, so foreign to the people of Egypt that it was recognizable to all who encountered him because he belonged to God. So his hope was never in this world. That's how he was able to endure so much suffering over the years without losing hope because he belonged to God and he never gave up on his family because he knew that he was a part of something bigger than himself. Something special that God was doing among that family and yet it spilled out even beyond his own family because he belonged to God, the world around him. Even the unbelieving world was a better place because Joseph was in it. Can we say the same of ourselves? Actually, I can answer that question for you this morning. Because when you belong to God, the answer is always a resounding yes. 
All that's left is for us to behave like it, you see. We should behave like God's people because that's who we are. We belong to God. We have an eternal promise in Christ, which means our hope is not in this world. So there's no reason to fall apart when life takes an unexpected turn. When this world throws you a curveball because your hope is in something far greater than this world. Because you belong to God, you're also a member of the greatest family on earth, which means you're never alone. It means you're a part of something bigger than just you, and it means you are a benefactor to all of the care and compassion and forgiveness and love and blessing that goes along with being a member of his family, even when we don't always act like it. It also means you have been given the capacity by the Spirit of Christ inside of you to be a blessing to the world around you, whether you realize it or not, whether you believe it or not, it's still true. Okay, if you belong to God, all of these things are already yours. It's just that sometimes our behavior doesn't reflect who we actually are because we allow ourselves to get confused sometimes about our true identity, and so we begin to believe that we're something we're not. Sometimes we believe we're defeated, but no matter how much you believe that, it's still not true if you belong to God. You are not defeated because your hope is in Christ who has secured the victory that we need to overcome this world. You are not defeated. Sometimes we believe we're alone, but if you belong to God, it, that is simply not true because you're a member of his family, which means he is always with you, first of all, and we, your brothers and sisters, we are with you. Sometimes we believe we have nothing to offer this world. I'm telling you, that's a lie. That is a lie that we buy into when we measure our value by the superficial standards of this world instead of the priceless blood of Christ that he shed for us on a cross 2,000 years ago. The fact is, every single thing that we need to be filled with hope and to be blessed and to be a blessing, all of it, it is all already yours. When you belong to God, which means all that's left is for us to act like it. Let's pray.